This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge at Wharton website. We're here with Wharton Legal Studies and Business Ethics Professor Julian Yonker. Julian, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. And you're here to talk to us about some of your research, which is about directed duties. So first of all, can you tell us what is a directed duty? That's right. So directed duties are things that come up in our ordinary moral life, and they also come up in the law, in particular in private law, areas such as contract and tort. It's probably best to start with an example, and an example from ordinary moral life. In fact, here's an example that you're listeners will probably be familiar with. Mm. Uh, Consider a case of promising. Consider the kind of promise that I imagine the musician Jay-Z entered into with Beyonce when they got married. I take it that part of that, I don't know the details of their marriage, but I take it that part of that marriage arrangement was a promise by Jay-Z to be faithful to Mm. Beyonce. Now, we think in our ordinary moral lives that one has a duty to keep the promises that one makes. So if Jay-Z makes such a promise, then he has a duty to keep it. He has a duty to be faithful to Beyonce. And if he breaks that, that duty, then he does wrong. But that duty is a directed duty which means it's not just the case that he must keep his promise. He owes it to someone in particular. He owes it to Beyonce to keep his promise. And what is more, if he breaks that promise, then he doesn't just do wrong, but he wrongs someone in particular. He wrongs Beyonce. Directed duties are not things that we ordinarily talk about. That's a term of art. But we do talk about owing it to each other to do certain things. And we do talk about wronging each other. And we also talk about rights. Rights and directed duties are importantly connected. So, Rachel, if you buy... Beyonce's latest album, which I can recommend to you. It's very good. I own it, actually. but Then you know. Uh, then you have a right to listen to that album. And I shouldn't interfere with that right. I have a duty not to interfere with your right. And I don't just do wrong if I violate that duty, but I wrong you in particular. So directed duties have this relational aspect to them. And the philosophical puzzle is, why do we think duties have that aspect? And now, how does this play out in the context of the law? In contract law, much like in the case of promising, we think of the parties in a contract as having rights and duties in terms of that contract. And those duties are directed, right? Because there are correlative rights, there are directed duties. This is something that legal scholars have thought about for more than a century, uh, beginning with a scholar by the name of Hoffeld. If, uh, once again, if, if you have a right in a contract as against me, then I not only have a correlative duty, I have a correlative directed duty. So I owe that duty to you. So I think contract law is made up of directed duties and rights, Tort law, similarly, I think parts of property law are the same. And in general, the private law, can that, that's one part of the legal system. Uh, the private law, I think, is distinct in that it is made up of such directed duties. That's in contrast to criminal law, where we think of 
ourselves as having duties, but those duties, if they are owed to anyone at all, they are really owed to the community, to the state. So one way in which that contrast manifests is that private law is thought of as being about the relations between private individuals, and private law allows us as individuals to hold each other accountable, whereas in the criminal law, it's really for the state to enforce the law. So it's that distinction between being accountable to each other or having relationships with each other that plays out in the private law as opposed to the criminal law. Now, what are some of your key findings in this paper about directed duties? So the philosophical question about directed duties is, can we make sense of them? Can we make them intelligible to ourselves? And so can we defend them? In what way is our system of morality or our legal system distinctive? Because there are directed duties. You know, I think there is... uh, some scope for reasonable difference in moral cultures. If you go back to ancient China, the Confucians never talk about directed duties. In fact, they never talk about duties. So I don't think the philosophical task is to show that our talk about directed duties is the only way of having a moral culture. But we do want to make sense of it. We want to make it so that we can defend the fact that we have such a culture. And that means showing what difference having directed duties makes in our lives and showing what is important about that difference. What would we lose if we stopped talking in this way, if we stopped talking about wronging each other or owing it to each other to do things? I propose a theory of directed duties that attempts to answer those sorts of questions. I call this sometimes the repair theory and sometimes the recognition theory. Uh, I call it the repair theory because I think it's important to connect directed duties with our practice of holding each other accountable. We spoke a little bit about that in the legal context. In the moral context, and that's really where my focus has been, Holding each other accountable takes place through a sequence of responses, responses that we're perfectly familiar with from our everyday life. If someone wrongs me, if, uh, for example, let's go back to our case of Jay-Z and Beyonce. If Jay-Z breaks his promise, then it's perfectly reasonable for Beyonce to blame him, to be angry with him, and to seek apology from him. And we think it's appropriate for that blame to find apology as its response. And if the apology is sincere and genuine, then it might be the case that Beyonce decides to forgive Jay-Z. Those exchanges, that practice of responses, is what I call the practice of accountability. And in order to understand what is distinctive about directed duties, we have to see them as located in that practice of accountability. Our practice of accountability has a very special structure. So if someone wrongs another, we think that the person who has been wronged is the person who gets to blame them. And we think that it is the person who is wronged to whom apology must be made and to whom redress must be made. And it is the person who has been wronged who has the power to forgive the transgressor. So again, going back to our example of Jay-Z and Beyonce, Jay-Z breaks his promise that he owes to Beyonce, then it is Beyonce and not some member of the public, not Jay-Z's audience, for example. It is Beyonce who gets to 
uh, forgive Jay-Z, and it is Beyonce to whom Jay-Z must apologize and make redress. So accountability has that structure, and that's really what's distinctive about directed duties. Uh, so once we understand that structure, we begin to get a little bit more insight into what it is for a duty to be directed. So how can understanding directed duties and having some knowledge about this impact our actions or influence our relationships? In order to answer that question, I should say one more thing about the repair theory or the recognition theory, as I sometimes call it. In order to explain the structure of our practice of accountability and so to explain the existence of directed duties, we need to notice that each of us has an interest in recognition. By that I mean we each of us have an interest in the rest of our interests being acknowledged or recognized by others. So we think of people wronging us not just because we think they set our interests back, but also because we think that they act in a way that doesn't acknowledge the interests that they set back. We each want to be recognized by others. And so morality is much about the relationship of recognition that we stand in with others. So I think this can help each of us as moral beings, as moral agents, if we begin to recognize that the requirements of morality are not laws written on stone tablets. They're not commands given down by the state, but they really are constituent components of this relationship of recognition that we stand on. So I think this theory, this repair or recognition theory, can help to make us at home in our moral understanding and can help us to see the point of our moral talk. But I think it can also affect substantive questions about what we ought to do. So often, moral philosophers have told us to pay attention to the interests of others, where the interests of others are really about, say, the material well-being of other people. Um, but we need to notice that people care not just about the things that they have, not just about their bodies and their well-being and so on. People care about how others think about them. People care about others' attitudes towards them. So as a moral agent, it's important for me to recognize others, which is to say it's important for me to see that they have, other in that they have interests to which I should be sensitive and also to see that they care that I am sensitive to those interests. So there are moments where I should signal that I'm sensitive to those interests. That fact about morality can, I think, begin to explain to us some of the features of many of the wrongs that we are so worried about today, things like discrimination, insult, hate speech, and so on. Many of those sorts of wrongs are really centered on this interest in recognition that I think is really a central component of our moral lives. Now, your example <clears throat> previously had got me thinking, so Jay-Z may owe his primary apology to Beyonce, but his fans might think he does owe them an apology, or her fans might think he does owe them an apology, or in another different context, when a company does wrong or a CEO does wrong, maybe the CEO owes the apology to the person that he, did, he or she did wrong to, 
but that company's customers might feel like they are owed an apology. So how does that come into play here? That's a great question. In the case of Jay-Z and Beyonce, I think it's possible that Jay-Z owes further duties to other people. So I think primarily he owes a duty to Beyonce. And the explanation for that, we could get into the details of promising, but the explanation for that is going to be that it is Beyonce's interest in being able to rely on his conduct that really grounds the duty to keep his promise. And that is why he owes it to Beyonce. It's her interest that is defended by that duty. But there will be certain cases, and here we can think about the politician, maybe, who cheats on his wife, say the, uh, the president who cheats on his wife and who thinks that it's necessary to apologize not just to his wife, but to the general public. There, I think, we can see that there's an interest of the general public in the general fidelity or the general good character of someone in office. And that will explain why a president owes a duty like that, not just to his wife, but also to members of the public. Now, I think something like that may very well be the case in the business context. And it's going to, defend, it's going to depend on a number of circumstances. It's going to depend on the nature of the company. It's going to depend on who we think its stakeholders really are. So this raises really deep questions about business ethics. Who do we think are the people who have a moral stake in the conduct of business? Certainly, I think there are cases we can think of certain environmental cases where a company's recklessness puts at risk people who are not its customers but who are within the environment of its operations. And there, I think, there are interests at stake which ground duties of the company towards the general public. Uh, so, you know, really an answer here is going to depend on the circumstances of the case. But my hope is that this repair theory gives us a framework in which to answer that kind of question. Well, it also is interesting to me because it also begs the question of, how do companies or what are companies doing that are maybe engendering these feelings from some customers that this company owes me something, I have some sort of moral relationship with this company, whereas other customers might say, or other even if it's the case of a politician, other constituents might say, oh, well, this person doesn't owe me anything. There's a question here about which relationships are significant ones for morality. We have all sorts of relationships with each other, not least familial relationships, romantic relationships, and so on. And I think morality actually has its roots in those sorts of relationships. But we now live in a society in which we have much extended relationships. Uh, I think ex relationships of exchange are actually fairly natural relationships, and morality does concern those sorts of relationships. But in our current context, we have extended supply chains, for example, and it's not clear whether a supplier should be responsible to an end consumer or to other intermediaries along the chain. Or even I, as your Facebook friend, should be responsible for what I say, to say even if I'm not saying it to you. Or I, you don't even, I don't even know that I said it to you. Yeah, that's right. So our actions tend to have consequences for third parties, consequences that are often 
unforeseeable. And this gives rise to significant questions in the history of tort law and in contract law and in product liability uh, doctrine about exactly when should we see there being a relationship. Now, once again, I'm I'm not able to give a detailed uh, answer that will that will set out, you know, uh, all the cases here. It's going to depend on the circumstances. But I think what we have here is a framework. Once we notice that, we need to look at the structure of our practice of accountability, and then we need to see how interests in recognition really ground the structure of that practice. We begin to get a framework for seeing which other relationships that we care about. Now, one other way in which I think this theory and in which directed duties in general is important for business ethics is the question whether corporations and other organizations are moral agents like other human beings. So this is a much debated question in recent times. And one way in which the question comes up is, as in recent Supreme Court cases, whether a corporation is the kind of thing that can have rights. My theory contributes to that discussion because to have a right is to be owed a directed duty. Remember, the legal theorist Hofeld said these things are correlative. So if a company is to be able to have rights, it must be capable of being owed duties. And the repair theory says that a company must be a participant in the practice of accountability, and it must have an interest in recognition. It at least must be capable of having an interest in recognition for it to make sense to owe duties to a company. So that's a contribution to that debate. It doesn't settle the debate. There are difficult questions about how the interests of individuals and individuals as participants in our practices of accountability interact with these questions about organizations. Now, we have time for one more question. Could you briefly tell us about what's next for your research? I've just begun a project on the nature of promising. My claim here is that promising is a kind of joint activity and that this philosophical account of promising can shed light on contract law doctrine. Think again of our original example, Jay-Z and Beyonce. Most philosophers think that the nature of the duty to keep one's promise are grounded in some way in the capacity of Jay-Z or the autonomy or the authority of Jay-Z. Or other philosophers think that the nature of the promissory duty is grounded in the interests of Beyonce, in her interest in reliance or her interest in assurance. And I think both of those kinds of philosophy have important insights into the nature of promising. But I think it's been neglected that in order to really account for the shape, the contours of our promissory obligation, we need to notice that promisor and promisee, Jay-Z and Beyonce, are really involved in a joint activity, that there's a kind of joint commitment that they enter into when one makes a promise to another. That can explain why there are certain norms of fairness that enter into our promissory obligations. It's not just the case that Jay-Z must keep his promise to Beyonce, but you know, Beyonce mustn't make it the case that it's impossible for Jay-Z to keep his promise. Or it might be the case that Beyonce, in fact, needs to do certain things in order to make it uh, easier for him to keep his promise. Um, 
in order to account for that, we really need to begin to see promising as a joint activity. Now, once we do that, I think we begin to see that there's an important connection between promising on the one hand and contract law on the other hand. So one of the things that theorists of contract law have long struggled to explain is why the notion of good faith has such a prominent place in our contract law. And I think this account of promising can begin to give an account of that. Julian, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Rachel. You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's podcasts on our website, knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.